welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, business editor for Variety. Today, my guest is Mona Scott Young, CEO of love and hip hop producer Monami Entertainment. How dare I not succeed? That's how Scott Young describes her view of her potential as a businesswoman. She does not mince words in our conversation about how she built Monami into a diversified powerhouse. Scott Young details how she segued from music management into TV when the chance to launch Love and Hip Hop came to her in a roundabout way. Scott Young is one of the few black female CEOs of a production company of significant size. She talks about what the past few months of social upheaval have meant for black creatives. And she has a question for all of those who suddenly decided it would be good to take a meeting with her. Am I assuaging their guilt or do they want to do real business here? Scott Young offers her thoughts on what the industry needs to do to drive lasting change at the decision maker level. Mona Scott Young, CEO of Monami Entertainment and the force behind the reality TV juggernaut that is love and hip hop. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Love and Hip Hop premiered on VH1 in 2011. Anybody that knows anything about TV knows that it took minimum of, you know, six to 12 months for the idea to come to fruition. I first want to ask you, what was it in your career that prepared you to recognize and seize the opportunity when the chance to develop Love and Hip Hop came your way? Um, That's a great question because I was at a very interesting crossroads in my life. I had been doing music management for a very long time, had an opportunity during that time to produce my first television show when our company became the urban division for Mike Ovitz's AMG. And we had an opportunity to get kind of a front row seat to the TV, the film world, the inner workings. Um, and I did a show with one of my clients, Missy Elliott. And that was kind of the first entry and the first taste of producing. I realized also at that point with the making of that show that there was so much more that I wanted to do. And that I had spent so many years developing my clients and building on their brands and really giving them the foundation necessary for them to realize all of their dreams and for them to be everything that they could be. Meanwhile, there was all of this inside of me that I still wanted to do. So in 2008, I branched out and I started Monami Entertainment. And the interesting thing about that period, if you look back, the music industry completely collapsed. Right. There was right. this whole, you know, at the advent of streaming and the record labels were losing money and the artists weren't touring as heavily. Missy got Graves disease. So she went underground and there was all of this, you know, um, upheaval during a period where I was supposed to be bridging the gap into this unknown territory with forging out into my own business and trying to kind of explore what's next for me. and. Television was just one of the things in the back of my head that I knew I wanted to do because of the experience that I'd had, but it certainly wasn't the core of what I left Violator and started Monami to do. That mm-hmm. was more about following whatever it is that I wanted to do. I ventured into, you know, cosmetics. I, you know, just kind of dibbled and dabbled in different things. 
But when the opportunity presented itself via one of my protégés, Yandy Smith, who had left a violator, started managing Jim Jones, come back into the fold when I started Mona Me, and brought with her Jim as a client and this project that they'd sold at VH1 that they'd been for years trying to develop, couldn't figure out the right kind of point of entry. And I saw this as an opportunity for me to do something that was rooted in a space that I knew. Mm -hmm. And although it was coming out of left field, because it certainly wasn't kind of the primary focus, I thought this was a way for me to get into the television game from a place that I was comfortable talking about this world that I had navigated for years, talking about the experiences of these women who I knew very well. And it felt like a great way for me to marry where I was coming from with where I wanted to go. And, um, you know, I took the leap of faith and jumped at the opportunity and really just applied a lot of the same wherewithal and skill sets that I had as a manager to this new medium and this new genre. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that I think that speaks to your sheer determination. Um, and I can imagine, you know, getting you coming into a room with, television programming execs, they, they, the, the thing they want to know most is that somebody has a vision and right. somebody's in charge. That is, that's why showrunners are so popular. Yeah. yeah, and the, yeah. And the ability to execute on that vision. I mean, there were a lot of things that I brought to the table that were outside of the box, right? The deep Rolodex, the relationships in the space, the credibility for all the years that I'd spent there, and also an understanding of the culture. There was, you know, this this shorthand that I had with just speaking to the audience that they were trying to tap and trying to connect with. And the marketing expertise, that was something that, you know, wasn't really done. I heard and I learned the hard way because in music, you develop a project, you build a project, and then you're there with the project through the marketing, the promotions and the rollout. In television, it's a very different thing. You know, you can conceptualize something, build it from scratch bring it all the way to completion and delivery, and then you're turning it over to the marketing and promotions team, and you have no more input in the project. But I think what they recognized and appreciated and respected was, again, that connection with the audience, the understanding of the culture that we were trying to tap, and they allowed me to have input on the marketing and the rollout of the show. And I think that that was, you know, an instrumental part of the show's success. Mm-hmm. When in the in the process of its, you know, its birth, was it before it premiered or after it premiered? When did you know, oh, my God, we really have something? I mean, I know, obviously, you went into it with every good expectation. But when did right. you feel like, oh, wow, we got something? Well, you know, it's interesting because, of course, I love the cast. I love the world. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Nobody's ever seen this space before presented in this way. I was very proud of the show because of the way we approached, you know, the 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 world and the glamour and the, how beautiful the ladies look. So it looked very different from everything on television. And from that perspective, I knew that we had done something different. I don't think it was until we saw what was happening on social media. The show would go off the air at 9 p.m. And straight through 10, 11 p.m., through the second showing of the show, people would still be talking about it on social media. And although in the beginning the ratings weren't, you know, great, what we knew is that we had something that was tapping the audience, that they were connecting to, that they were engaged in, because the conversation far exceeded, you know, 
what was happening on the screen. And I always credit, you know, Jim Ackerman and, and the network executives at the time for staying committed to that and for recognizing like, you know, there's something about this show that is getting people's attention in a way that if we stay with it and we continue to build on it, then it will grow. We started out, you know, with six half hours in the first season and then it grew into an hour long show. Right. At what point did you realize that you, you could have more than just one show? What, at what point did you realize you could franchise it, you know, kind of to various cities? Right. I think as the show grew in popularity in that first season of New York, we saw people starting to pop up in different regions because that's the beauty of the hip hop. Right. It's global. I'm still waiting for Love and Hip Hop London. Um, but, you know, we started seeing pockets of people going, what about us? What about us here in Texas? What about us here in, you know? in all the different states. And we started looking around and it's so funny because the first city that I went to and did a deep dive casting in was Miami. And we went to Miami and we met with a slew of cast members and we knew that there was something there, but we didn't feel like we had, you know, the right, not just collection of cast, but point of entry for the storytelling. Because it right. was always a, a, an agenda to make each city unique in a way that they lived as standalones. Right. Um, and I remember going to Atlanta. There was, you know, all of the excitement and hoopla around the Atlanta being the new Mecca. And that's where people were flocking. And initially the idea was, oh, well, then is there going to be a deep cultural connection to Atlanta if it's just a bunch of folks from everywhere else who have migrated there? Because right. that was, that, I have to be honest, that was part of the issue with Miami the first go around. No one was really from there. You know, everybody just kind of landed in Miami. So they didn't have the deep connections and the roots that you need for the storytelling. Um, but when we got to Atlanta, what we found there was this, this level of, this is my last shot. It's do or die time for me. The stakes were so high across the board for everyone. And the characters and cast members were so big in personality and the things that they were engaged in and the lives that they were living that it was like, oh my God, this is it right here. And when we shot that first um, episode of Atlanta, I remember looking at it and going, this is it right here. So although the New York season was the cornerstone and it kind of built the, the foundation that it was built on, that first episode of that first season of Atlanta was when I said, oh, this thing's out of here. You know, there's something special happening here. And you've made, an, you made a very interesting strategic decision to have as part of your company a whole arm de de dedicated to physical production so yes. that you can actually produce your shows in-house. Can you talk about the reasoning behind that and you know why it was important for you to have that? Absolutely. I learned how the sausage was made, you know, and it, really it was about creating a greater profit center, one, but also having the ability to be instrumental in the putting together of the shows. Because, of course, I can have the idea. I can develop the idea. I can bring the cast together. But if I'm not also involved with the physical making of the show, the editing of the show, then I don't have as much input and control of the final product. Um, so it was both, uh, you know, just building on my skills, building on the services that we could provide, being able to see my projects all the way through to completion and final delivery and creating a profit center for, you know, my business. Um, Mona Me Entertainment provides my physical services as a producer, but Mona Me Productions actually provides physical production services. 
Mm-hmm. And do you do it as a third party for other people as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love partnerships. I love collaborations. So there are, you know, several projects that other people conceptualized and brought to us that we engaged in and helped them deliver and packaged and went out to the marketplace with. So we're physically producing those shows in addition to the ideas that we generate, you know, internally. Did you start Monami in your living room or did you have financial backing? How, how did you actually go about launching the company back in 2008? It's to this day an independently funded, financed, and solely wholly owned, you know, company. Yeah, and and let's uh, look. I would not turn my nose up if someone came a knocking, but um, you know, it was something that I, you know, started out of my passion for building on on my business, and so I made the investment. You know, I started building out on the staff, creating a team, development, production. Um, getting equipment and just have built it out. I had, you know, for a while, a deal with Lionsgate. That was a one-year deal that we engaged in. And that was great because it allowed me to spread my wings and learn. And we still have projects that we developed together that we've taken into the marketplace and sold. So they're still partners. Um, But yeah, I have been navigating and managing this, you know, independently for the most part. Did you have any uh, role models or any people that you turned to for for advice and counsel when you were starting out or even today? Um, When I was starting out, you know, Jim Ackerman, again, I always credit him because he taught me so much, really took me under his wing and made me understand that, you know, I didn't need this degree or what that I had the tools necessary to figure this out. Right. So that was a big part of it for me. I never had the. the benefit of the college education and the kind of, you know, uh, 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 not understanding, but the comfort level that, okay, I've got this piece of paper that tells me I know what I'm doing. It's all been trial and error throughout my entire career, dating back to music and, and even as I transitioned. So Jim was a great influence on, you know, getting me to understand that I could do this, teaching me what I needed to know about this. My partners, Stefan and Toby at Eastern, when we started the franchise together, these were, you know, filmmakers who were just getting started themselves. So we built that franchise together and grew, you know, within our own skills together. Um, So that has been kind of the way I've gone about doing it. And there hasn't been kind of this one mentor I can point to, but rather different people along the way who, you know, encouraged, mentored, taught. And I'm a sponge. That's kind of, you know, the way I'm built and I love learning new things. So I'm constantly listening, learning, figuring out how to put something together, constantly taking it apart in my head. Um, But yeah, and now I've got great colleagues in the business that I turn to, especially during these times that Mm -hmm. have been especially difficult for us all. We've really been able to look to each other and say, you know, how are you doing this? Like, how are you doing, first of all, but how are you doing this? Like, yeah. what's your COVID protocol plan? Um, have you heard of any, you know, things that are happening out there that I should be aware of? And there's there's definitely a community that has banded together to, to get through this. Would you say that, um, it sounds like from what you're saying, that being a talent manager, being in the music management business was good, you know, putting things together, building stories around artists and brands. It sounds like pretty good training for being a producer. Is that that the case? I say that all the time. I said, the only thing I came into this with are my skills as a manager, understanding people, understanding what makes them tick, you know, understanding how to motivate them. 
right, to even to their own success. Because a lot of times people have things that get in their way. And, and one of my skills as a manager, I believe, was my ability to, you know, connect with talent and help them remove the obstacles that block their own success. And these are all the things, the empathy, the, the human curiosity, the wanting to tell the stories and to tell it from an empathetic and non-judgmental place so that it's not about me in any way, shape, or form. This is your life. This is your story to tell. I want to provide a platform for you to tell that story unapologetically. So these are all of the skills and the, you know, the, the natural, you know, uh, uh, traits that I bring to what I do as a producer. Mm-hmm. How did you, how did you get your very start? How did you break into the management field? Oh, that is a long story because it's it's so funny. I have to come up with a better, better narrative than the truth, which <laughs> is that I stumbled into a dance studio to take an aerobics class, peeked <laughs> my head into a dance class, decided like I often do when I see something I've never done before in my life, decided that I could do it. And that led to me working with artists um, in a program called Stage Moves that taught them stage presence and how to hold a microphone, how to project to the audience, how to perform on stage. That was a hop, skip, and a jump away from actually working in close proximity with artists and their labels. And again, sponge, fly on the wall. I started learning all of the, you know, inner workings and nuances of all the different pieces that came together to assist an artist's career and to bring a career, you know, out into the marketplace. And these producers who were uh, working with a group that I was actually doing artist development with came to me and said, you know, look, you're pretty much doing it. You've gotten involved with these guys mainly just to get them to your sessions on time, but you've been so instrumental and so helpful. We think you could do this. And um, I immediately thought they were out of their minds. And then I got an office in the basement of a residential building got phone lines in and a fax machine, hung a shingle, and I was in business. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, Started reading everything that I could get my hands on, everything you need to know about the music industry. You know, every book that Donald Passman ever wrote. (laughs) And um, really spent a lot of time in the studio learning how music is made, how a song is constructed. You know, that was kind of my entry point, and that led me to, you know, then needing to understand once this song is done, how do we take this and communicate it to the world? And that was the mechanics of, you know, record making and releasing of records. And then it's like, okay, if we're going to put it out into the world, what is our messaging around it and how are we presenting it? And then that was the marketing experience that came with that. So, you know, I always talk about my crawl, walk, run philosophy because I need to know what I'm doing before I start to do it but I will never hesitate to at least take the first step towards doing something I've never done before in my life. You know? um, is there anything, any first steps on your uh, immediate horizon? Any, anything that you're going to expand Monami into or anything that we Absolutely. should be looking out for? Absolutely. We are forging into scripted. There have been projects in my head. There have been projects in, you know, development that we've wanted to drill down on. And this COVID time has given us the opportunity, given me the opportunity to slow down long enough to do that. And um, I've formed a great partnership with a company out of South Africa called Envy Studios. 
Um, and they do physical production. They're doing, you know, wonderful work across all the networks, but we formed the D partnership that allows me to not only provide physical production services in the scripted space, but we have quite a few projects that we're developing together. Um, some that are just amazing in terms of the times that we're living in and experiencing in right now, experiencing right now. Um, we've, you know, secured the rights to the Shaka Zulu miniseries. That was, you know, an amazing groundbreaking project back in 1985. And when we look at I'm the I'm old parallel, enough to remember it. <laughs> listen, I'm old enough to remember it too. I'm older than you are. Um, and so that project I'm extremely excited about because I just think it's so timely right now, the parallels that we're experiencing in terms of the revolution we're seeing, you know. Um, so that's one that is a major priority for me uh, in the company and within our partnership. Um, doing more biopic style, style stories as well because it's an extension of, you know, telling the true to life stories of people who have just compelling stories to tell. Um, you know, the one that comes to mind, I know that people are familiar with Aaron Hernandez's story and we've sure. seen that over and over sure. again. Um, but I've forged a partnership with Cheyenne Jenkins, who was Aaron's, you know, other half, the mother of his children, the love of his life. They were together as, you know, high school sweethearts. And for me, it was always about what was life like for her, right? She went to bed with this man every night. They had children. They had a family together. This person that he became is not the person she fell in love with. And telling that story from her perspective, which I think is just the point of view that we have not seen, we have not heard. And that story is just mind-boggling when you think of all the elements involved with his life. And I'm fascinated by what Cheyenne's experience was. And so that's a project that we're developing now as well that I'm incredibly excited about. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, scripted is where, you know, we've got a lot of our focus. Uh, some of the shows that I'm developing now also have product extensions to them, hmm. because I think that that's a, you know, way that we should be, you know, paying attention to and, and, and developing more fully because, you know, we've got to find ways for um, the content to pay off exponentially. And if there's an opportunity to have a product launch come from a concept that is compelling and entertaining, then why not? You know, we've seen it successfully done on the project runways of the world. Mm -hmm. And so there are some shows that I'm developing in that space as well. Is it, I mean, I know I talk to a lot of independent producers and they say that, you know, these are tough times with companies squeeze, squeezing margins. I mean, setting aside the pandemic issues, just producing companies want more for less. Are you, I mean, you know, with Love and Hip Hop, you've got such an engine, but I would imagine in developing other, you know, in developing other projects, although there's a lot of demand and a lot of buyers, I know the terms are very tough. Are you able to, you know, bring enough to the table to get, you know, to get deals that make it, that are workable for Monami? For, for, for I mean, yeah, I think the terms are tough, of course, because everyone's kind of trying to, you know, maximize their margins. We see that happening in every industry. But I, you know, what I'd like to think is that when a company gets into business with Monami, it's not just about the physical production and the putting the pieces together. It's all of the added value that I bring right? My ability to really connect with and, and manage the talent process, right? The personal infusion that I bring to every project that, you know, we produce so that 
it is, you know, developed and it is produced with a sense of, you know, innate storytelling and, and, and attention to detail and connection to audience. So it, yes, it's been, you know, harder to meet the margins, but I think we've been very, very blessed and lucky in that the volume has still been there because I think there's still, you know, a connection to me and what I bring to Mona Me Productions so that the relationship is there with a lot of these buyers and they're getting into business with me. So it's not just about buying a project. It's a little bit more than that. So we've been very lucky in that we've managed to keep the lights on and to stay in development, to sell projects during this period, to continue to you know, have great partnerships across all the networks in a way that continues to, you know, um, create opportunities for us to turn shows around. And, and I feel confident that, you know, with the volume of business, it will allow us to deliver fully, even though individually the networks are looking to tighten up their margins. Mm-hmm. And as a producer, obviously, as you say, like an, the chance to have a product launch off a show, like that could be game changing for you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mona, I mean, it, it, it's been such fascinating talking to you and hearing your story. And I, I, I keep thinking that, you know, this is a tough business for anybody. It is particularly a tough business for black people. It's particularly a tough business for black women. What I this is a variation of my first question. What was it about you, your upbringing, your drive that allowed you to build this company? There are very, very, sadly, very few Black women running companies with this size and scope and ambition. What, what do you think it was in your background, the people that you met along the way that allowed you to, mm-hmm. to prosper in a business that is so hard for, for so many people, particularly people of color? You know, I guess when I go back to the question you asked about my influence, I understood that you were asking about in this business. But if I had to credit my real influence, it's my mother watching this woman with, you know, very, very little education, right? Functionally illiterate, but was able to provide everything that I could possibly have wanted in life. And I always say that as I grew and understood what her limitations were and how frustrating that must have been for her, I recognize that I have so many tools at my disposal. And how dare I not succeed? How dare I not maximize those tools? So I understand that every one of us is given a gift. Right. And we all say that and we pay lip service to it. And it's what's in every cliche self-help book. Right. But how many of us actually pay attention to that gift, hone that gift and then step into it. Right. And that was one of my work tools. Right. The way people polish their skills. I polished my gift and I recognized what it was about me that made me uniquely different what I bring to any situation that I'm involved in. And it isn't just a work ethic. It's a sensibility. It's a spirit. And I work really hard to surpass that with every single day, with every project. Right. And again, this is my personal goal. It's my personal, you know, uh, uh, goal that I've set for myself. I don't compare myself to anyone else. I don't look to see what anyone else is doing. It's just the way I choose to operate. And, um, Every single day, even through COVID, I've said I've been drilling down and focusing in. And there was something exciting about not knowing what lied ahead, lied ahead, lied ahead. Is that a word? No, what? No, not knowing what lay ahead. Thank you. 
<laughs> um, what, not knowing what lay ahead, not knowing what was around the corner, not knowing what the future held, right? All of these things, as opposed to succumbing to it, it was uh-huh. a reason to fight through it, you know? So, you know, when you ask me what that is, I'm like, I looked at this woman and everything she was able to accomplish. And I'm like, I'm golden, you know? There is no way that I'm not going to kick, scream, bust my way to as far as I'm allowed to go, as God will let me go. That's my only limitation. As you know, this country has been in a period the last couple of months of of real, I think, discussion and movement on on very important social justice issues, racial justice issues. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense that there is that some it's different this time. Is there a bigger commitment to lasting change? Do you think that there's been more movement in the decision makers in the, in the arena of elevating people into important decision making capacities? Is there any signs that you think this is real? I love the way you phrase that because when you say lasting impact, that's a big thing that's been on my mind because there were so many conversations flying around when all of this was happening. Everyone wanted to reach out and make sure that they were, you know, checking that box. And, you know, for a lot of the conversations that I had, it was about, is this a, you know, a, 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 a moment in time or are we talking about something sustainable and lasting? Because I think the biggest Travesty will be if we look back at this moment and it was just a moment, right? I think we've seen more uh, unrest than we've saw in a very, very long time, but with tragic, tragic consequences involved. And shame on us if we don't all rise to this occasion and make a lasting change. So when I would get calls about, you know, hey, this person just wants to meet you, you know, I would very jokingly say, well, am I, you know, assuaging their guilt? Or do they want to do real business here? Because like I said, it isn't about just a project or hiring a person. It's making a deep investment in the community so that this is, you know, that we're making a legacy change. And I've said to people, don't, you know, uh, ask me for a recommendation on someone to hire. That's great. But why not make a deep investment in my company so that I can continue to, or anyone of color's company, so that we can continue to provide the job opportunities, provide the training, provide the, you know, the, the point of entry for more people of color so that we can build on the, you know, the workforce. We can build on the skill sets. That's what needs to happen in order for us to see lasting change. I'd heard so many people say, oh, well, there aren't that many executives out there. Well, how could there be when there weren't that many opportunities to begin with, to even bring them into this world, to allow them to learn what they need to be to be great executives. And there are tons of great executives out there. But, um, you know, when I look back on it, even now, the election, I feel, has almost started to turn the tide on all of the, you know, interest and excitement around people of color and making sure that the barriers were finally broken down once and for all and that this wasn't a revolving door situation, but really a kicking in the door situation. Mm-hmm. I think it's still left to be seen. Uh, you know what? I, if, if it called for anybody kicking in doors, I would be behind you, Mona <laughs> Scott Young. Thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you. A big part of my agenda is making sure that I, once I kick that door in, I'm reaching back 
and pulling as many, you know, people of color, especially women of color. Like you said, I think it's even harder for us, for them to find mentors and, and opportunities. So that's a massive agenda for me. So many talented people out there who may never get a shot. And if I can, you know, provide the platform, the opportunity, that's a massive and major part of the agenda at Mono Me. And so, you know, again, like I said to the partners who reached out and wanted to have these great conversations, I was like, look, put your money where your mouth is and let's create some real sustainable, lasting, impactful change. Absolutely. Mona, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. I look forward thank to you. keeping in touch. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. Thank you so much for your time and giving me the visibility. I'm excited about this piece. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from listeners. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business.